listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Good morning. It's good to see you. It's always fun to come to White House. My name's Fritz Hager. I'm one of the pastors on staff at Bethel. And White House, for me, is always this great mix of, I was going to say old faces, but for those of us who are on in years, you don't like to be thought of as having an old face. Uh, how about familiar faces and new faces, newer faces, or unfamiliar faces? I don't know. It's good to see you, regardless of whether I've seen you before or not. I guess is what I really am trying to say. Um, I have the pleasure of filling in for Mark and Clint, and we're going to stay in our Sermon on the Mount series. Um, I've got, I'll give you a warning before I get started. This is a long passage. And one of the things I know about the White House campuses is they excel in short sermons. Um, and so I know what your expectation is of me, and I'm going to try and deliver it, but 18 verses is an awful lot. Um, so, um, for those of you who are tired already, I apologize. Um, this is going to be longer than normal. I'm wasting all my time talking about how long this sermon's going to be. Let me start by telling a story that kind of illustrates the central point of this passage. Uh, I recently went to Key West with my son, Sam. He's my youngest son, age 11. We did lots of fun stuff. Rented a convertible. That's always fun. We fished, we went snorkeling, we ate lots of good food. And, I, and he had never been snorkeling, so we booked this snorkeling trip, had high hopes for this trip, because the water around Key West is absolutely beautiful. All these different blues and greens and purples, and it's crystal clear, you can see forever. And this trip was to a nature preserve, kind of, I guess, an underwater nature preserve. I didn't know those things existed, but apparently they do. And so we're supposed to go to this preserve and see all sorts of cool stuff. So we go out to the place where we're going to dive. We get this safety brief from the captain, which was fine. I'm used to that. But then he tells us that we're going to be diving in two or three feet of water, which means we're really not diving. We're just floating, right? And uh, we can't touch the bottom because it's a nature preserve. So we are just going to float along the surface. And he says, don't worry, you don't have to go very far. Everything you need to see is right off the front of the boat. Okay. He said, there's uh, an abandoned refrigerator over there and there's a couple of cinder blocks over there. So I paid several hundred dollars to spend three hours on this boat to float in two feet of water and look at junk in the midst of this beautiful setting of Key West, Florida. So, um, but fortunately, this is Sam's first time to snorkel. He thinks every snorkeling trip is like this. Um, so he didn't mind. But as the trip began to wind down, the captain started to make his pitch for the tip. And essentially made the case that I'm going to starve if you guys don't tip generously. My first mate, she's going to starve too. And so we happen to be standing next to the captain. He pulls out not a tip jar, but a tip jug. I mean, it's a massive jug. He has high expectations that people are going to be very generous on this, on this trip. And so we were standing next 
to him, and we're starting to pack up. And so I had my wallet handy. I just I reached in, got the tip money, and put it in the in the jug. First person in. I was very proud of that. And then uh, the you know we pull up to the dock, and the mate secures the boat, and he hands the mate the jug, and she goes and she stands at the exit to the boat, so that everybody has to walk the gauntlet past the jug to make sure they tip. And I'm starting to feel nervous because the mate doesn't know that I have already put my money in that jug. And so I see what's happening here. I'm starting to panic as I'm getting closer and closer to the mate. And um, I'm thinking, well, I could tip again, but the trip was kind of lame. I don't want to do that. Uh, there's a line of people behind me. My, my wallet's buried now in my backpack. I don't want to go digging for that. Um, I could explain to the mate, hey, I've already put the money in, uh, but that felt even more awkward, like I was drawing attention to the fact that I'm not putting any money in. So I, at the last, I just smiled and said thank you and walked right past her and felt like a total loser. I mean, it's weird. I knew that I had tipped. The captain knew that I had tipped. My son knew that I had tipped. But I wanted the credit with the mate so that she knew that I tipped. It remind, Whenever your life reminds you of a Seinfeld episode, and particularly if it reminds you of George Costanza, you know you're doing something wrong. There's a Seinfeld episode about this. You might remember it, where George is going to put some money in a tip jar And as he goes to do it, the guy turns and looks away, and George doesn't get any credit for putting the tip in. And so the next time he's in there, he really wants credit. The guy does the same thing. He kind of turns, and George puts the tip in, and he's frustrated. The guy's not seeing him. And so he reaches back in to get the tip out so that he could do it when the guy was seeing. And well, of course, the guy turns around as George is pulling money out of the tip jar He gets the opposite of credit for tipping. He gets thrown out of the restaurant. Well, that was, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to like dig in there and say, that's my $30 down there in the bottom. Um, So this is just a snorkeling trip, right? It was awkward. It's not that big a deal. But our passage today deals with the same issue, the same motivation around who gets the credit. Do we get credit or does God get credit? And the text today says it's credit for practicing righteousness, which we might call acts of faith or uh, the New Living Translation calls it good deeds. And in this passage, Jesus has some stern warnings for us about how we should be careful in the way that we practice our faith in person, in, out in public. And you know, as Jesus spoke these words, he lives obviously, lived in obviously a different culture than we do. And we have a unique challenge in that what is private with the click of a button on your phone can become public. And so when we talk today about public versus private, those lines are blurred for us in a way that they weren't blurred in Jesus's day. So we have to be super careful so that we can be authentic ambassadors for Christ in a public world with growing public spaces. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. 
Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18. We'll continue our series on the Sermons on the Mount. And we'll see how to be authentic ambassadors for Christ in a public Christian culture. And so while you're turning or clicking to Matthew 6, I'll preview how we'll spend the rest of our time here together. First is we'll look at a principle that Jesus outlines in verse 1 that is going to govern the rest of the passage. And then he's going to give examples of how that principle is applied to the public practice of our faith. The first is in giving to the poor, which is verses 2 through 4. And then the longest section is verses 5 through 15, which is going to be on prayer. And then 15 through 18 on fasting. So let's look at the principle in verse 1. This reading from verse 1, chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The verse before this, verse 48 of chapter 5 says, be perfect. Now Jesus says, beware. So what are we supposed to watch out for? Well, let's break this down. Practicing righteousness. It doesn't mean we're working to get better at our righteousness. It doesn't mean that we're like doing some drills, some righteousness drills to get ready for the big game. It actually means we're doing good deeds. So watch out for doing good deeds. That doesn't seem to be something we need to watch out for. But it says, before other people. Which at first reading is an odd thing to say as I stand before other people to preach. And we just all sang songs together and prayed together. So what does it mean to practice our righteousness in front of other people? The other translation says instead of other people, it says do this in public. So does that mean we're not supposed to gather and worship or that what we do here, maybe, maybe that's private and what we do out in the world is public. And if it's out there, what does that mean? Does that mean no street preaching? Is that against the rules? Uh, what about putting a fish sticker on our car? Is it okay in this parking lot and then as we drive out of the parking lot, not okay? Listening to Christian music in our cars. When it was rolled up, that's Okay. Windows rolled down, now we're in public. That's the exact kind of silly rules the Pharisees at that time were putting on people. So it can't mean that. What is it to mean to beware? And I think if we look back in chapter 5, we see the answer, which is Jesus is always concerned about our hearts. It says that the purpose of this public good deed, is in order to be seen by them. So it's the heart, not just the actions. The outward actions are fine, but it's the heart. It's the motives that are aimed at pleasing men, not God. And that's what is important and is real test about these public actions. Are they meant to gain favor, favor with God or man? You know, sometimes you hear people say, well, I don't I don't talk about religious things. I have a private faith. That's between me and God. And maybe they even point to this verse, if they happen to know the Bible well enough, to, to justify that. But that's not what this verse is saying. Public good deeds are fine. In fact, back in chapter 5, when Jesus said, let your light shine before others, 
he then immediately spoke to the motivation behind those public acts. So that you may see your good works, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He says essentially the same thing right here, but in the negative sense. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So in the same way, we aren't supposed to be eternal reward treasure hunters. That's not supposed to be our motivation. Walking around, primarily concerned about storing up eternal frequent flyer miles. But we are to be concerned about what we do, how we do it, and why we do it so that it is pleasing to the Father. And that's why he starts, Jesus starts with be careful or beware. Public good deeds are at a much greater risk for having our motives all twisted up to make sure that they are God-centered and not man-centered. Now let's look at the first of three examples. The first is giving to the poor. Let's read verses 2 through 4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Let me make a couple of structural observations here first. Jesus will use this pattern. He's going to use it three separate times at all these different examples. He's going to begin the discussion of each example with a when statement. Look at verse 2, when you give to the needy. Verse 5, when you pray. Verse 16, when you fast. Jesus presumes that we'll actually be doing these things. Then he's going to tell us, don't be like the hypocrites in those same verses, 2, 5, and 16. And we'll dig into what that word means, but I'll tell you this, you don't want to be like the hypocrites, okay? Don't have to go to seminary to know being a hypocrite is a bad thing. So that's the pattern. Let's go back to verse 2. Jesus is not referring to literal trumpets, likely here. He's using metaphorical language. Um, and we might say today that they were tooting their own horns. I guess if you're an old person, you might say tooting your young. Young people probably don't talk about that kind of stuff anymore. Um, but so this is figurative language that Jesus is, is, is using. So what does hypocrite mean? The word here, upokritakes, originally was the word for actor. It wasn't a bad word. But it came to mean someone who was being fake. And these hypocrites are not like actors in a movie where they're not actually doing what it looks like they're doing. They're actually doing these things, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They look like they're doing it to honor God, but instead they're seeking the attention of man. They're supposed to be doing it in response to God, an act of worship. So this has several implications for how we handle giving here at Bethel. The first is, it's one of the main reasons we don't pass a plate. It's not that it's wrong to pass a plate. It's just we choose not to so that we protect people from feeling the human pressure to give. It sometimes means we also don't talk about giving very often. 
Um, and I was, I was glad to hear Adam do that first thing this morning. Um, it is a little more discreet to give in the, in the box. It's even more discreet to give online. And the second way this plays out at Bethel is, uh, for those of you who don't know, your giving is confidential. There are only two people in the church who have access to giving records. And neither of them are Mark Kirkendall or Clint Wright. So you can be assured that your giving, whether you give a lot or you give a little, is not something that influences how your pastors and the staff interact with you. But sometimes people, you know, maybe the newer folks, you might get the wrong impression that because we don't pass a plate, because we don't always talk about giving, that it's not important. But as Adam mentioned, it absolutely is uh, for the lights to be on. Uh, we need your generous gifts. And because it is spiritually healthy for us to participate in giving through worship. So that's the first example of authentic worship, and it's actually giving. The second example of authentic worship here is prayer. And this is the longest section. It actually has two warnings of how not to pray plus then a model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. So let's read verses 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they might be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you go pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's the same pattern. When you pray, not if. Don't be like the hypocrites. What do they do? They pray in places where they will be seen by others. Now, as a pastor and someone who up until very recently was an elected official, I get asked to pray at all different kinds of places in public. I'm going to pray in public at the end of this sermon as well. But I'll confess to you that particularly in these public and political settings, it is very challenging not to pray aimed at the men and women in the audience, but to continue to pray to our Heavenly Father. But for most of us, you're not professional Christians. What could this look like? What would be an example of praying in a public space? And the best example I could come up with was praying in a restaurant before a meal. Nothing wrong with praying in a restaurant before a meal. I encourage you to pray uh, before a meal. But you need to check your heart and your motives to make sure that you are praying because you're truly thankful to God and not to be seen by the other folks there in the restaurant to make them think that you're a super Christian. Then in verse 7 and 8, Jesus gives a second warning. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So there's two warnings here. Don't use empty phrases like the pagans do. And the empty phrases here refers especially to repetitive phrases, saying the same things over and over again. We might call it Christian lingo today, uh, but especially as Jesus mentions, the belief that more words is always better, which is a good reminder for preachers too. More words is not always better. 
And now Jesus turns to a prayer that's likely very familiar to most of us, probably all of us. The heading in your Bible might call this the Lord's Prayer. Let's read verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Most of us could probably recite that from memory. But before we dig into this prayer, I want to make some connections to what Jesus has just said about prayer. First is, he's just warned us about using too many words. And what Jesus offers here is a very economical prayer in that he covers a lot of bases in a very few words. The second, and maybe the most important, is Jesus has just warned us about empty, repetitive phrases. So what does that have to do with the Lord's Prayer? I think it's ironic that we've taken this prayer right after this warning and made it the most repeated and most common prayer in Christianity. And, and what does an empty phrase mean? It means you've done something to where it no longer has meaning. And that's the risk of the way we treat the Lord's Prayer. It can easily become rote that loses its meaning. Now, before we break down the prayer, I want to explain what I mean by this is how to pray and not what to pray. So I want you to consider this prayer like a recipe. And some of you know my wife, Serena, and you know that she's an excellent cook, particularly when it comes to Italian food. And her family recipes from her grandmother, who was from Sicily. And when we first got married, we'd go visit her family, and they would cook spaghetti and meatballs. And it was awesome, particularly for someone who grew up uh, eating spaghetti sauce out of a dry mix. You throw in some water. So... This was the real deal, and it was awesome. But I had this problem in that um, I would go down there, and uh, spaghetti and meatballs was awesome, and then we would come home, and Serena would make it, and it wasn't. <laughs> and so, being a young, foolish husband, one day I asked her, I said, why does your grandmother's spaghetti and meatballs taste so much better than yours? <laughs> then I ducked. No, she didn't hit me. But um, what she did do was she took the challenge uh, because she's a better person than I am. And she went and visited Grandma and she watched Grandma. And before Grandma would throw something in, she would take it and measure out. And she actually created a recipe for the spaghetti and meatballs uh, because her grandmother didn't use a recipe, her father didn't use a recipe, but for a time in her life, she used the recipe for spaghetti and meatballs, and it was great. And now she's passed that actual recipe on to the next generation, and our kids can now make spaghetti and meatballs. So later, I, let's get back to, let's keep talking about spaghetti sauce um, instead of prayer. Uh, so I started wondering, you know, this sauce is so good. It would taste good on other stuff, right? You know, so it tastes great on meatballs. What about a pork chop? Surely that would be good. Her family actually makes their own Italian sausage. 
The sausage is awesome. Surely, like, sauce and sausage and spaghetti, that that would be a good combination. And Serena said, no, you can't do that. And I said, okay, I'm smarter now. I'm not going to criticize her. I said, well, oh, really, why can't you do that? She goes, don't. That's not how my family does it. Um, so they were just going to stick right to the recipe. They weren't going to deviate from the recipe. And that's the same thing we can do with the Lord's Prayer. This is a recipe. Don't, don't feel like you have to cook from this recipe for the rest of your life. I've been married almost 30 years. I still have not had a pork chop with that sauce. So feel free to use this as the starting point and then add things to the recipe um, as the Lord leads you. So this prayer then has six petitions. Don't have that many fingers out. Six. Three that are God-focused and three that are man-focused. The first request of God, that his name be hallowed, which is the same word for holy or sanctified or set apart, which God already is those things, so... Why are we praying that? Because here, that word means to treat something as holy. It means to revere, to honor. Just like the entire Sermon on the Mount, and especially this teaching on giving, praying, and fasting, the concern here is with our hearts. It's both our hearts that we, the prayers here, would revere God, but that others would as well that the community of worshipers would actually be growing, that more and more and more people would hallow, would revere God. The second petition is that God's kingdom would come. This doesn't mean that God isn't sovereign, that he's not already the king. He absolutely is. But there are aspects of God's kingdom that have started and others that are coming, that have yet to happen. We call that already and not yet, both at the same time. Another way to describe the kingdom of God is it's the same as God's saving reign. Not the reign like we've had here for the last month, but reign as in rule. So the prayer for God's kingdom to come is for God's saving reign to continue to expand until Jesus comes back and God's kingdom is fully inaugurated. Hallowed name, kingdom come, will be done is the third petition. And again, this is not a statement that contradicts God's power. He is omnipotent. So what does it mean for his will to be done? One way to make sense of of what might look like a contradiction is to think of the two wills of God. The first is the revealed will. That's the, the will in terms of how things are supposed to work that is revealed in Scripture. That's revealed will. The other would be the secret will. And that is how God mysteriously and secretly orchestrates everything in his sovereignty to accomplish his purposes. So that's what we're praying for here. We're praying that God's revealed will would be done by all creation, perfectly, without rebellion, And not just externally so that others could see, but truly and from the heart. And the next phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. It actually applies to all three of these petitions. God is in heaven right now is perfectly revered. 
His reign in heaven is fully realized. And his will in heaven is perfectly followed. And the prayer is that earth would be like that today. And we know that one day that actually is going to happen. But this isn't just a a universal prayer, a prayer for the rest of the world to get on board with God's plan. It's also a prayer for each of us that we would revere God, that we would be part of his work, that we would be part of the incoming of his kingdom, and that we would do his will, his revealed will, perfectly. Without hesitation, without resistance. So that's the God-focused portion of the prayer. And now Jesus switches to the next three petitions that are explicitly focused on us. And in just a few words, he covers the three great human needs. Food, forgiveness, and deliverance from sin. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The original audience, for the most part, were tied into an agrarian economy, meaning they relied on agriculture uh, for their income. And so they were dependent on God to actually grow the crops. They were dependent on God for weather that was favorable for this. And if they weren't in agriculture, they were likely day laborers, meaning they were working today for the food they would eat tonight. And so they could recognize their dependence on the provision of God in a way that's very challenging for us today. Most of us here, maybe all of us here, have food in our refrigerator and have a little bit of money in the bank account. And that would have made us seem very rich to this audience as Jesus said these words. The next petition is actually one of forgiveness. Text says debts here literally, but I think you have to read it as sin. By reading verse 12 in conjunction with verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespass, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Taken, I believe, too literally, you could imagine a ledger. On one side, all the times we've forgiven someone on one side, and then God's check mark on the other side. Did they forgive? Did they forgive? Did they forgive? Did they forgive? If there's any line on this side that doesn't have a check mark next to it, guess what? Too bad. God's not going to forgive us. That would be the over-literal way to read this passage. I don't think that's what this means. I think what it means is we're supposed to have an attitude of forgiveness. The norm for us should be that we act in a forgiving way because we have been forgiven so much. The final petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I think it's important to know that God doesn't lead us to temptation. And this isn't a prayer saying, please don't do that to us. 
What it is is a figure of speech that's kind of like a double negative, which there's a technical term for what it is, but double negative is one that we know. In the same way, we might say something like, I will not soon forget yesterday. It's the same thing as saying, I will remember yesterday for a really long time. And I think that's what this means by lead us not into temptation. It really is saying, lead us towards righteousness. And if you lead us towards righteousness, away from temptation, then in effect you are delivering us from evil. So it's a final reminder that not only are we dependent on God for our material provision, our daily bread, we're also dependent on God for our spiritual provision as well. So that wraps up the prayer section, the second example. The third and final example that Jesus uses is fasting. Look at verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on fasting because you can look at me and tell that I'm no expert on fasting. I don't like missing a meal. Uh, when I was in the army in a tanker, they always said, you never pass up food, fuel, or bullets. And so I, that's my life mantra um, now. It worked when I was 22. It doesn't work as well at 52. Um, and, you know, I've already run long, and this is White House. So, but I do want to say a couple of things about fasting. The first is, Jesus presumes his audience will fast. That does not necessarily command, because at other times, he defends his disciples for not fasting. Like in Matthew 9, 14 through 17. But he follows the same pattern here, which says, when you do fast, do it in a way that doesn't draw attention, which maybe you guys are great at that because as I look out here, I don't remember any of y'all fasting. So you've probably perfectly applied this passage already that in your fasting, you have done it in a way that it is super secret. Um, so good for you. Uh, but Jesus has the same reminder here. When you fast, when you do good deeds, do it to please the Father. Don't do it to please man. So that's it. Don't be a public man-pleasing hypocrite. Be an authentic worshiper, authentic in your giving, not concerned about gaining favor with men. And you do these things to bring glory to the Father. Because anything we have has been loaned to us as stewards by God. So we should be authentic and efficient in our prayer Concern more about God's glory than our needs and wants and authentic and private in our fasting. So let me close with this question. The George Costanza question, if you will. Who gets the credit for the good in your life? The good things you do in life, who gets the credit? Who are you trying to please? And I'll confess, if you're like me, it's a mixed bag. So what do we do about that? Is the answer to just try harder, 
do better? Like all of chapter 5, this is impossible to do on our own. Only way we can begin to do this is if Jesus changes our hearts, gives us not just a little different heart, not a little better heart, gives us a new heart. And the only way that happens is through faith in him, the belief that Jesus was a real man who was also fully God, the son of God. And that these words are not just good things to live by, they're the very words of God. And that same man lived and died a death in our place. He was perfect. He knew no sin. And yet he willingly went to a cross where the sins of the whole world were heaped on him so that we could have peace, so that we could practice these good deeds in a way that restores fellowship with God that pleases him. Apart from faith, we cannot please God. And that's not just for the moment that we accept and are justified. It is for our, the rest of our spiritual life that we are continually and forever dependent on God's grace to do good things in our hearts so that we can please the Father. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.